The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. After we experience conflict, the first decision that we have to make is what is the next faithful step? What is the next faithful step? What direction are we going to go? When I was younger, I experienced a conflict and I had to make a choice. I must have been only about four or five years old and so after dinner, uh, my family and I, we went for a bike ride and we were biking down the sidewalk, heading to the park and all of a sudden I heard a noise. A really scary noise. And I, so I looked in front of me. I didn't see anything. I looked beside me. I didn't see anything. I looked behind me. I didn't see anything. And then I looked up. And flying extremely low, right above me, was a hot air balloon. And the sound that I had heard was the pilot igniting the burner to fill the hot air balloon with more hot air. And it scared the heebie-jeebies out of me. And at that point, I had a decision to make. What is the next faithful step? Can I fight this balloon? Or should I run? I chose to run. But I had two choices. When we experience conflict, we, we have often believed that we have the same two options. Fight or flight. When we were sitting in the room with uh, 300 other Christian educators receiving some of this conflict transformation training, uh, we spent some time talking about the fight-or-flight mentality that we have. And these are often our natural responses to conflict. You can probably think back to a time in your own life when you have encountered some sort of conflict. Ask yourself that question. What was my natural response? To fight it head-on or to run away and hide? This may also cause us to think back when, to times in our lives when, when our conflict, uh, when we haven't engaged conflict in, in healthy ways, we can sometimes see how this has changed things. So what was it for you? Fight or flight? This morning, as we turn our attention to this foundational story in Scripture, when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, right, we see three different responses to conflict in the scriptures. To engage in competition, to run away in avoidance, or to move towards with generosity. So first of all, before we jump in, just, I just want to give a, a, just a bit of an overview of um, saying, you know, there's so much in this Genesis 3 text that we could spend probably an entire 10-week sermon series just diving into what is here in Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to do that today. What we're going to do is we're going to look at this passage through the lens of conflict. And so that means that we may, may uh, pass over some aspects of this story this morning. But what, what we want to begin with is looking at actually the very beginning of chapter 3, where we see that the, the serpent, we're told, was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. 
He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Commentators and pastors that I was reading this week all made a point to highlight something in this first, uh, this first phrase here. Did God really say? And Tim Keller said it particularly well, so I'll quote him here. He said, he said What's, what we see is that the fall of the human race begins not with an action, but with an attitude. Not with an act, but with a sneer. In other words, the serpent doesn't first grab the fruit and say, Look at this! Doesn't it look wonderful? Don't you just want to take a bite? Take a bite and eat it. Come on! No. He first asks the question, Did God really say? Commentators all focus in on this word really because the sense in the original language is not a sense of, of asking a question, but actually of mocking God. It's as if the serpent is saying to Adam and Eve, what God would say such a thing? Why would God give such a ridiculous command? Come on, you can't be serious about this guy. And on a deeper level, the fact that the serpent begins to question God puts Adam and Eve in a really hard spot. One commentator puts it like this. The serpent makes it seem like God is not good or gracious. He is selfish. He is deceptive. And he is preventing Adam and Eve from achieving the same position as himself. In other words, the serpent is saying to Eve, God is not for you. And in fact, he's trying to keep you down. The way that the serpent is inviting them to engage in conflict is through competition. To be somebody, Adam and Eve, if you really want to be somebody, you've got to take down this God. You've got to make yourself like him. You've got to take the fruit and eat it. Did God really say? Notice that when Adam and Eve engage in competition, it calls into question the very character of God. God can't be good. God can't be loving. Often when we engage in conflict with the attitude of competition, we fall into the very same temptation. Competition often minimizes the character of the other person. Competition often, often does this without giving the proper space to actually really understand that person's character. It bypasses and minimizes good communication. I have to say, I, I hear this in Christian community way too often. Way too often. And it, and it often sneaks up on us. You know, when we, when we say things like, did you hear that this person said that? They must think like this. Or did you know that that person is part of that group? We all know how they think. This is engaging in the same sort of competition that the serpent invited Adam and Eve into. It minimizes communication. It calls into question the character and the motives of the other person without giving the time and the space to really understand. How would things have changed if Adam and Eve had brought the serpent's questions to God himself? Hey God, this snake over here says that you're not loving and gracious. How can that be? Is that true? Instead, they assume things about God to be true that aren't. Competition is based on the idea that there are winners and losers in every conflict. 
And so it can be very polarizing at the same time. As a result, conversation is replaced with convincing and dominating. Unfortunately for Adam and Eve, it turned out that the serpent's competitive deception was baked with half-truths, right? They swallowed all of these half-truths whole and ended up paying the price for it. Notice in the text it tells us that, you know, that, that they would die. They don't die immediately. Their eyes are opened, but only to their brokenness and shame. There's, there's half-truths baked into the attitude of competition all the time. When we head into conflict and engage it with fight, with competition, imagining that there's going to be winners and losers and we have to assert ourselves, we will end up looking back on the situation and saying, I got this wrong. I got this part of it wrong. I have yet to have a conversation with somebody who's engaged in conflict in this way and not admitted to doing at least something that they regretted. Hindsight shows us competition leads to broken relationships, leads to minimized communication, does not promote collaboration. The second point, though, if we're not going to engage conflict and competition, should we run away in avoidance? After Adam and Eve eat the fruit from the tree, they find themselves very different. Verse 7 tells us that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. It's so amazing how quickly things change for Adam and Eve, isn't it? In rapid succession, things just unroll. Like, like you know, like when a ball of yarn falls off of the couch and just right across the floor, before you can just grab it and put it back, it's exactly the same way. One commentator I read this week put it like this, What is pleasing to the eye causes displeasure in their own nakedness. So there's, there's this opposite thing that's happening, right? They looked at the fruit, they ate it, and then all of a sudden they're displeased with themselves. Then this commentator goes on, he says, um, uh, nakedness, and, and they needed to cover it with fig leaves. And the wisdom gained, remember they were promised wisdom, only enables the making of the coverings themselves. And so they, the way that they actually put this into practice is to try to cover up and hide what causes them this brokenness, and see the half-truths start coming out, right? All of these things that they thought would be wonderful end up being horrible. More than that, though, they don't want to face God. And so they hide in their shame among the trees. Notice that, hey? They took fruit from the tree, and now they're hiding in the trees. The imagery is incredible. In the same way that competition causes a breakdown in communication, avoidance does the same thing. Instead of meeting it head-on, we dis disconnect ourselves from it, break off the communication on our own part. At the heart of avoiding conflict, we believe a deeper lie that nothing good can come out of this. 
right? Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the garden. Now they're hiding from him. They're believing the fact that they can't face him because nothing good will come from it. God will condemn them. His heart will be broken. They will die. Things will just blow up. So let's hide. In the same way, avoidance acts out of this scarcity mindset, right? It's fear-driven. It's driven out of a scarcity idea that we have arrived at the conclusion of the conflict. We know how things are going to work, and so it's best to take things on our own terms and just cut ourselves off. Avoidance can also, though, manifest itself in a sort of universal acceptance. We hear phrases sometimes like, as Christians, we just want to love people. That's what God calls us to do, to love our neighbors. And so we're not going to talk about the things that, give, that we get in conflict over. We're just going to love people. And at face value, this is sort of convincing. We all want to love people. But when that becomes a catchphrase to disconnect ourselves from conflict, it causes problems. Because it, it cuts off any sort of possibility of deeper Christian relational intimacy. Because there are ways that we read Scripture differently. There are things that we believe about God that are different. There are ways that we like to worship that are different from each other. And when we say that we just want to love people, we cut off the possibility of talking about any of those things. The practical sort of... Uh, application to this is thinking about the dinner table at the family function that you have where there's things that you know are off the table issues. Things that everyone has just agreed not to talk about for the sake of unity, right? We just want to sit down and eat Christmas dinner together and not have it blow up. And so we're, we're not going to talk about politics or we're not going to talk about the environment or we're not going to talk about church. We're just going to not. This sort of universal um, elevation of love and unity can hide itself in avoidance. And it leads us to a, 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 a superficial, surface-level relationship with each other. If we want to see conflict as a way to grow spiritually and relationally, conflict has to be faced. And so as we've seen in point number one, if we face, if we try to engage conflict in the spirit of competition, right, where the serpent plants that idea in the mind of Adam and Eve, it will leave us with distrust and broken relationships. If we try to run away from conflict in avoidance, we will find ourselves with less opportunities for building trust and deep relationships. And so in a very real way, the ways that we engage conflict are hard. They're hard because this is not something that we can think our way out of. I'm not up here as your pastor saying, you know, our problem as the church is we just have to think more. Or our problem as the church is that we have to listen more. Or study more. Or X, Y, or Z more. No. Our problem with conflict is that we're broken and sinful human beings. And the fight or flight mentality is a result of our brokenness. It is 
baked into our bones. And if we want to approach conflict and see conflict differently, then we have to not seek this uh, you know, behavior modification, but we have to seek wholesale transformation. And I feel like this is going to be something that's on repeat throughout this entire series, right? It's not that we can amend our, the ways that we engage in conflict. We have to wholesale transform our approach. And the truth is that the only way we can do this, the only way that we can engage conflict apart from the fight or flight is when we slow down and pay attention to the way that God engages it with us. When we do that, we see in Genesis 3 that God goes towards conflict with generosity. And it's only through seeing ourselves being pursued with that same generosity that it will transform how we approach it in our lives. In verse 9, we read these striking words from God. Where are you? God knows that Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit. Right? He's God. He sung the earth, the whole, the whole creation into existence for crying out loud. He knows what happened. And yet he moves towards them with a question. I imagine that his tone would be kind of like a parent who has lost their child in the grocery store. Right? There's that, how dare you do this to me? And where are you? Kind of that love and that justice in the tone. After Adam did, uh, did what he did, Adam and Eve did what they did, they still felt safe to answer God. I find that striking. They, they felt safe enough to actually respond. God moves towards Adam and Eve in their sin. He doesn't avoid the conflict and sweep it under the rug. He doesn't wink away their sin, right? He can't. He's a God of justice. It's baked into his character that sin must be paid for. Right? He doesn't avoid it. On the other hand, he doesn't come to them with his back up against the wall, right? With a win-lose attitude, an attitude of competition. You thought you could put me down, now let me set you right. You are my creation, and I'm going to show you who's boss. No, no. That's not the way that God engages this either. He approaches them with generosity. He allows them to tell the story, even though it's riddled with half-truths in itself. More than that, though, God sets the tone for a relationship with us that continues to this very day. I, th I believe that in Genesis 3, that God's posture towards conflict maintains itself throughout the course of Scripture. And I think Sally Lloyd-Jones does such a beautiful uh, way of uncovering that for us in her storybook Bible when she writes the conclusion to this Genesis 3 narrative. She says, You see, sin had come into God's perfect world, and it would never leave. God's children would always be running away from him, hiding in the dark. 
their hearts would break now and never work properly again. God couldn't let his children live forever. Not in such pain, not without him. There was only one way to protect them. You will have to leave this garden now, God told his children, his eyes filling with tears. This is no longer your true home. It's not the place for you anymore. But before they left the garden, God made clothes for his children to cover them. He gently clothed them, and then he sent them away on a long, long journey out of the garden, out of their home. In another story, this would have been the end. But not in this story. God loves his children too much to let the story end here. Even though he knew he would suffer, God had a magnificent dream. One day, he would get his children back. One day, he would make the world perfect again. One day, he would wipe away every tear from their eyes. You see, no matter what, in spite of everything, God would love his children with a never-stopping, never-giving-up, unbreaking, always-and-forever love. And though they would forget him and run from him, deep in their hearts, God's children would miss him always. And they would long for him as a child longs for their home. But before they left the garden, God whispered them a promise. It will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And when I do, I'm going to do battle with the snake. I am going to get rid of the sin and the dark and the sadness that you let in here. I'm coming back for you. God moves towards us with such generosity. And he looks ahead out of this story. And he sees that this is going to lead him to the cross. And yet he doesn't stop moving towards us with generosity and love. We have hope. We have a relationship with God because he moved towards conflict with generosity. And it led him to even lose his only son. God calls us to do the same. The first step in conflict is moving towards the other person with generosity in the same way that God has moved towards you. What does this look like practically? What is this calling us to do? Well, when we experience conflict, one of the things that the Colossian Forum uh, trainers said to us was, what is the next faithful step? Ask yourself that. Whenever you engage conflict, what is the next faithful step? If you sense that you have some sort of disagreement with a person, principle number one, always increase the communication. Increase the level of communication. Which means if somebody sends you a text about it, give them a call. If somebody sends you an email about something, give them a call. If somebody 
uh, if somebody, uh, and if all, at all possible, meet with them face to face to talk to them about it. We, we if, if we want to do this well, we have to increase the level of communication in conflict all the time. Right? That's what it means to go towards. And this includes people that we most want to avoid. The most frustrating people to us are the people that we should go towards the most. The people that we put off, the people that we don't want to respond to that email, those are the people we should go towards the most. The second thing is go towards with generosity, which means, I think, three things. First is that you have to give the other the benefit of the doubt. Give the other person the benefit of the doubt. The second thing is give the conversation the time and the space to understand the other person's motivations. Why are they coming at this the way that they are? What are the questions that you can ask, the open questions that will help flesh out the story to help you understand why a person is holding on to convictions in the way they are? And the third thing is, is always, always, always find points of connection. Christ holds all things together. Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And go towards others with generosity. Let's pray. Father, it is astounding at times to us the grace and the love that you come at us with, that you pursue us with. May this... um, this gospel, this good news, transform the ways that we go towards others. God, this is, this is hard work. I hope that I'm doing a fair job in this series of articulating how difficult conflict can be. Give us your spirit, Father, that we may, um, that we may ha- have the character that it takes to, to live together in Christian unity. Father, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.